All right. So I'm the sort of person who I'll throw a lot of little catchphrases around and I'll create my own cliches, basically. I'll use other people's cliches too. Don't worry, I'm shameless about that. But I'll create my own cliches too. And so one of the things I like to talk about is that here in Encounter, we're a responsive church. So if you hear something you like, you know, give me a yeah, so good, wow, come on, a bit of that, all good. How good's that? How good's responsiveness? Um, but it also means like just, just with your hearts, you know, like in worship, we really encourage people just to, to lay it all out there on the line. Following God is incredibly brave. Like it just takes guts to do it. You've got you to get out there, get out of your comfort zone. One of the phrases I love about God is the idea that Jesus basically came to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comforted. That's, that's kind of a nice little summary of what Jesus came to do. And so if we're not feeling disturbed, then maybe we're too comfortable or we're disturbed already. I don't know. You pick. But either way, I think God wants to shake you up. God, God does want to change you, like Jared said. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to bring you to life. That's the God we've got. So I want to talk a little bit. We're in the middle of a series called Encounter Life. I love it because this is our core values. This is who we are. This is the very heart of our church. And if you're new here, and I, and I see a few new faces that haven't had a chance to say hello to you yet, hello, um, <laughs> then um, stick around. We'd love to, we'd love to hang out. Uh, tonight at our place, Jenny and I are just opening up the fire pit and uh, we'll hang out in, uh, in Prospect at our place. Everyone's welcome. Come back, do community with us. Um, I've got two major prayer points for everyone, and I said these last week, and I'll say them again, and I've been praying them every day. I've been very good. I have actually prayed for you every day. And the first is that I, I want to pray that you will find your place, that you will find uh, where you fit in the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is one thing. God has one church, but there are many expressions in the church, and we're one of them here at Encounter. And uh, if you find your home here at Encounter, we'd love that. But if you don't, that's okay too, but we want you to find it somewhere. That's really important to us. So I'm praying for that, for each and every one of you. Uh, And the second thing is this. I want you to have a face-to-face encounter with God, a transformational experience with God. That's the other thing I'm praying for, for everyone, this series. So that's what is going on behind your back. Um, So this is a... (laughs) So good. How good is it when people do things behind your back? Nice things. Prayer. So what we're talking about today, though, last week we talked about our first core value, which is... That's an open space for you to... Jesus, Jesus, respond. Great. We're so on it today. This podcast is going to be unbelievable. (laughs) Jesus is our first core value. Our second core value is people. So today I'm preaching on encounter people, which means I'm preaching on all of you, which is good. It's good news. What an attractive bunch you are. That's so lucky. So lucky I get to preach to you. I get to look at you all the time. That's right. Speaking into being. Let me... I want to do that, though, um, by speaking through a particular lens, and I'll get to that in a second. But I just sense God, God saying something to me in the worship. And that was just, some of you, it's time just to jump in, jump in. I, I sort of shared a story last week about one of the encounter team who, when we met and they were just sort of discerning whether this is their home, I was like, oh, do you want to go away and pray for a few weeks? And they said, nah, nah, I need to just jump in. I know myself. If I don't jump in now, I probably won't. It's a big mistake. And and they're a part of us, and they're fantastic. We're much better for having them here. And so I think God might be saying that to a few people today. Don't overthink it. Jump in. It might be time just to jump in. Anyway, 
Here's a time I jumped in. I lived in Japan for a year. It was heaps of fun. I've got lots of good Japan stories. Frankly, I need to go live somewhere else for a year, so I've got some more sermon illustrations. But (laughs) Japan was fantastic. The people are very lovely to your face and mostly behind your back, but very, very lovely to your face. And uh, my, my crowning achievement and the one thing I wanted to do, because I'm male and this is such a male thing to do, is climb Mount Fuji and get to the top of the highest point in Japan. Because this is a very male thing to do, is go, I can conquer mountains as if you know, the mountains are really that concerned by you conquering them. Anyway, so I, I set off to climb Mount Fuji and there's a whole backstory in that, but we'll leave that for another day. As I'm climbing Mount Fuji, I'm climbing up by myself. I've gone through the gate. I didn't want to pay for a taxi to take me up because it costs you all this money. So I was like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'll just walk from the bottom up to sort of the, what they call the fifth station, which is where most people start. I was at the first station by myself. I'm walking up. It's night time. I've got my iPod, which was a thing at the time. And I'm pretty sure I had a mobile phone. Yeah, I did. I did. I had a little keitai with me, a flip phone. Amazing. My Japanese flip phone was like a slide flip phone. It went like that. Because Japan. Why not? And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm climbing up. I'm doing okay. Then the iPod goes dead. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, it's probably a first generation. It had no battery. Chuck it, chuck it back in my bag. I'm hiking up. I'm hiking up. Um, the phone goes down, I'm like, oh, this is bad. And then I'm hiking up, there's no street lights, it's just me and the moon and no traffic whatsoever. And then a thought crosses my mind, isn't Mount Fuji the place where all those suicide cults live? <laughs> and then I looked around and I saw all my neighbours, which were just dense trees. That's it. Just me and a lot of dense trees and a sacred mountain where people go to kill themselves on, like, in groups. It is a coordinated process. It is a terrifying idea. Of course, when you process it rationally, you go, well, why would a suicide cult want to attack somebody? But anyway, anyway, you're not thinking rationally when you're by yourself in pitch black darkness in Mount Fuji as a white guy at, you know, what was it, nine o'clock at night or something. I ended up, I ended up hailing a car down by like throwing myself in front of it and it turns around and takes me up to the fifth station and, you know, panic averted. What happens is you get to the fifth station and there's all these stations around the base of the mountain. So there's like four or five of these fifth stations and you start climbing and it's pitch black. And the idea is you start at 10 and you get up to the top of about 4, 4.30 so you can see sunrise, Japan, land of the rising sun. So I start on this journey. I'm all by myself. But as I get to the fifth station, there's, you know, another four or five people sort of doing the same sort of thing. They were smarter, got up there earlier, had a cup of coffee, that sort of thing. And so they start walking with me. We're not really talking, just a few little nods. And then you get a bit higher, you get to the sixth station, you pause, have a breather, climb a bit more, you know, get to the seventh station, pause, have a breather, start putting on clothes. It's getting colder and colder. Uh, and the higher you get up, the more people are there because these, these trails are starting to meet as you get closer. Get to the eighth station. By the time we're at the eighth station, I've got like two Japanese guys with me who had studied overseas and it was like we were best friends for life. And we're climbing together and it's, you know, it's like the end of some sort of drama where it's like, one more step, one more step, come on, nice station, one more. And it gets really steep as you get towards the top and you're, you know, like just crawling up, helping each other up. And you feel like you've actually deeply achieved something and you've done it with people and you've got this deep friendship. You start from this place of loneliness and suddenly you've got this deep friendship. But of course, like, don't, don't ask me to remember those guys' names because I never met them again. All we had were these two hours of shared experience of climbing Mount Fuji together. And then that was it. Never saw them again. They were Japanese. They lived in some other part of Japan to the place that I was living. 
I coasted back down the mountain in the morning and hitchhiked home and it was good. But it was a real picture of the way we do loneliness in community and the way that we are actually far more isolated when, than we think we are and we allow ourselves to be isolated. And I, I want to just propose something to you today and that is that Jesus died so that you don't have to be lonely anymore. Let me just, let me just put that out there. That might, that might not sit super well with people. Well, let me, let me just delve into the moment that we live in, because we live in maybe the loneliest moment in human history, certainly the loneliest recorded moment. We're living in the most digitally connected moment by far, okay? That's not a stretch. That's not a big statement. A, a moment in which the entire world is coming together through the internet, the globe is filling with people at basically an unsustainable rate, but we're at peak loneliness. We are so lonely. Here's, here's, a, few, here's a few quotes and uh, stats about loneliness. I was watching a movie, actually this morning, part of a movie, and, uh, and one of the lead, the lead actress said, a great many mistakes are made in the name of loneliness. And I thought, that's convenient. I'll put that in the sermon. Very true. A great many mistakes are made in the name of loneliness. Here's some statistics for you. One in four Australians are lonely. That's a lot. One in four. So about 10 people in this room are lonely. 70,000 people a year attempt suicide. That's one in every 400 in Australia. And the loneliness is getting so bad and so written about that there's now a group going on called ACEL, the Australian Coalition to End Loneliness. Uh, it is getting so bad that we're having to start groups to, I guess, start other groups to end loneliness because loneliness, you know, if you're with other people, you are less lonely by definition. 33% of Australian men feel like they are lonely more often than not and that and, and that they have nobody to talk to. In England, it's considered an epidemic. This is amazing. 14% of British people always feel lonely. Okay? Often or always. Basically, more often than not, we are lonely. It is so bad in Britain that they have appointed the world's first loneliness minister. There is a minister in the government who has a loneliness portfolio. Just let that sink in for a moment. So, right, there's like education and, and there's immigration and then there's loneliness. That's a portfolio in the British government. This is the world we're living in, which is so nuts. It sounds like I made it up, but it is true. Tracy Crouch is her name. I hope she's not lonely. <laughs> well, I do. Somehow, though, our connected world has made us feel more isolated. Here's another really interesting stat. And that is across the Western world, particularly the English-speaking nations, the loneliest generation, does anybody want to take a guess? Young adults. Young adults. The most digitally connected generation are the loneliest. They're, they're about equivalent with the builders. They're, they're the ones who are sort of holding on to the end of life. But baby boomers, who are all in their 70s now, you know, on and off of, of internet, depending. They're usually on Facebook. We all know our parents are on Facebook. <laughs> but they are less lonely than we are. They are more connected, even though digitally they're less connected. What is going on? Let's dig into this a bit further. There's a, there's a guy called Mark Sayers that I really like. He's a thinker and, and preacher and pastor out in Melbourne. And he wrote this book uh, called Strange Days, which is excellent. And he talks about that there was this recently declassified intelligence document um, that came out of uh, Russia and had been written during the Cold War. 
And it explains to field agents the kind of people that they used to target to turn against their country. So it's not, they didn't just walk around and go, you, 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 you. They would, they would deliberately go and target people that they thought would commit treason against their country. Agents, listen to this, were instructed to keep an eye out for those with emotional fragility, those who were immature and insecure, seeking to make an impact in order to gain a sense of worth, disconnected from a strong community, accountability, and deep relationships. In the mid-1960s, such people were difficult to find. I'm pretty sure we could find a few people that fit that description in 2018. And it's not like it's just outside the church either. There's a big arrow pointing right back at us too. So we've got loneliness and social isolation over here. Meanwhile, the gig economy is rising up. Short-term roles, casual roles, uh, service roles are on the increase. Who, who fits in that description? You've got a short-term or casual employment or, or you work in the service industry. Yeah, quite a lot of people. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that meaningful office relationships are shrinking, right? Uh, so jobs like Uber recreate taxi roles, which cause isolation and a lack of meaningful relationships. I'm a movie junkie. Has anybody seen Taxi Driver? If, okay, everyone else needs to go and see Taxi Driver. It is one of the great films of the last 50 years. Robert De Niro in his prime. Um, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? I don't see anybody else here. Come on. Come on. You need to be able to get my references, if nothing else. But Taxi Driver is basically all about this. It's about this socially isolated guy who gets more and more inside his own head and goes absolutely bonkers. Uh, and, and what Uber does is it recreates these roles that, that minimizes meaningful relationships. So what do you notice with Uber? Are they friendly or unfriendly? Friendly. Of course they are. Why are they friendly? Ratings. They want you to give them a good rating. Everything is public. Everyone wants you to give you a good rating. You go, so you, you're friendly, they're friendly, and at the end they're like, hey, five star, five star, five star, we're in agreement. Great, good, good, okay, deal, deal. You don't shake their hands, that would be too intimate. You don't want to build that kind of relationship. So work from home is more common, hot desking is more common, casual work, shift work, short-term contracts, all of these are fine, right? But like there's nothing wrong with any of them. But it means that rather than going to the same place at the same time with the same people and building relationships in the long term, you're not. You're having more casual relationships. Basically, your Facebook relationships are coming into the real world. This is the kind of interaction and depth we're having with a lot of people. At the same time, right, loneliness and social isolation, the gig economy, Australian households are changing. The nuclear family went nuclear. 35%. Just, just let this sink in for a moment. 35% of Australian adults live with no other adult company. So they're either single-person households or single parents. One of those people is going to go crazier than the other, and I know who I think is going to go crazier, because a weekend without my wife at home and I'm in some trouble. Another 27% live as a couple with no children. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, becomes, it can become a fairly insular thing. So almost two out of three Australians are living in that way. Either they are the only adult at home or they are just a couple with no children, which can, of course, this is just a generalisation, it can be quite insular. Now, here's the fourth thing I want to bring up, okay? We've got loneliness and social isolation. We've got um, the, the way the workforce is changing with the gig economy. We've got Australian households changing and now internet dating. Let's touch on that for a second. The internet dating is basically now the monoculture. Right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know tons of people have, um, 
have been internet dating during this church service. Thanks for putting your hand up, Tom. I, I know tons of people who have met online, got married online. What, what weirds me out a bit is how many Christians I know who are on Tinder, like not online dating, but on Tinder. And I know Tinder's not exclusively for hookups, but it's kind of exclusively for hookups. Like it is designed for that. It's a terrible decision. Go, go meet some people in the real world. Don't go on Tinder. Go find some friends. And, and everyone, I see you, so don't delete it now. Delete the app after the service, all right? So that's, that's good. That's right. Slip it back in your pocket. So the problem with this, with internet dating, is, is not necessarily a moral one, okay? I want you to hear that. I'm not trying to come down from a moral position saying don't internet date. I'm trying to do it from a psychological and relational position and say when we do this, there's a natural disconnection. In fact, one in five people on Tinder who deliberately make a connection don't bother meeting up with in the real world. And it's not a, it's not a oh, I don't think, this, I, I don't, you know, the hookup's not going to happen thing. It's just a... I don't want to take the effort of taking this digital relationship physical. It's just too hard. And when you survey people about Tinder, what we hear is that the, the two main reasons people go on are for hookups and self-esteem, which are the same thing. It's for people wanting to boost their own self-esteem one way or the other. These are not shock stories, right? Like sometimes in, in sermons, in, in messages, the temptation is to go, here's this shock story from the far extreme of the world, and, and you know, they, they work. But these are normal stories. People on Tinder, the gig economy, this is normal. This is the normal world we live in. We are deeply isolated. All these things put together are causing a fragmentation of us. It should be no surprise that people are lonely. We're practically being groomed for it. Lonely people spend money to be less lonely. Every time we disengage from real conversations and we plug into our phone, we plug into a dating app or an RPG or even just Facebook, we run that risk that we're running away from intimacy, running away from actually being in relationships with people. I want to give a really quick example of, of the difference for me. I drink a lot of coffee and I go to as many coffee shops as possible and I have no shame in that. Uh, and my, one of my favourite coffee places to go is a place called Coffee by the Beans. Does anybody know Coffee by the Beans? Okay. Now, there are three really, really, really good coffee shops within, like, I, I bike around most places, which is a story of its own. But I, I bike around, and there's three good coffee shops within my workplace, like, within biking distance from my workplace, or four, actually. Four, and they're all really good. And I almost exclusively go to Coffee by the Beans, and here's why. The coffee's, uh, it's good. Like, it's, it's as good, I think, as the other places. But the reason I go there... It's because the owner is my friend. And he became my friend because I started going there more regularly. And instead of just going, hey, how's it going? And, and you know, having that trivial conversation and moving on, which baristas are really good at. They're really good at knowing your name and one thing about you. That's kind of their job. But the owner, Vince, of Coffee by the Beans, is a friend of mine because over the years, he's taken the time not just to know my name, but he enforces it with all his staff. They need to know everyone's names. They work really hard to know people's names. And they build a culture where actually the whole place is saying, you are welcome here. You are wanted here. When you come in here, it's like coming home again. You're not just getting boutique coffee here. You're getting a home away from home. And you are. And so I go in to Coffee by the Beans and Vince sits down and he's a Christian as well. And sometimes we'll chat for half an hour. 
And sometimes he'll go, okay, no, no, I need to get up. I need to be touching base with everybody else because everyone else is his friends too. And you'll be having a conversation with him and he'll be like, so sorry. Hey, Tom, so great to see you, man. How are the kids? They're doing well? Right. What happened at work on Thursday with that? Thing? Like he knows people because he cares about people. So I only go to Coffee by the Beans. I don't go to these other shops anymore. They're fine. Their coffee's good. But they don't have that sense of relationship. There's a depth there. Last week we heard about how present Jesus was. This week I want to pitch again. Jesus is the antidote to loneliness, the true antidote to loneliness. He came so that we're not lonely anymore. So this passage that Jess read for us so beautifully, 1 Corinthians 12, is a very famous Bible passage, and it comes before a bit more that's quite famous. It comes before 1 Corinthians 13, which is the passage that gets frequently misappropriated into weddings. And uh, it's a beautiful passage. It's about love, but it's not about love in the way we want it to be about love. It's actually about the way people work together. 1 Corinthians 12 is, is about the body of Christ. Paul, who writes this letter, writes it in a way where he wants us to understand that the church is meant to be following Jesus. So he says, in this picture I'm writing for you, Jesus is the head, right? He's the head. The head looks somewhere, you look there. The head says something, you do that, right? And we are the body. The rest of us, the church, we are the body of Christ. But then he takes it further and he says, you need, get your 10 fingers if you can. They're all good. They're all good. Don't lose them. Don't, don't misvalue the pinky just because you're an index finger, okay? Otherwise, one of the other fingers might have their say as well, all right? And you know which one. <laughs> don't, don't be upset if you're a foot and you want to be an elbow because, you know, elbows can hit people harder than... Well, actually, feet are pretty good for that too. That's a terrible analogy. <laughs> but don't be upset about that. You have a role to play. You are critical. You are needed. You are important. And Paul takes it a step further. He basically says, if you're an appendix, we want you here. Maybe we can stop you blowing up. <laughs> That's the body of Christ. The beauty of it is because Jesus is the head and we're the hands and feet and the rest, we actually get to do stuff for Jesus, for the head, for the king. So I want to unpack the church a little bit more and why it's so important. Because Paul is actually telling us here that the body of Christ is the church, the church globally, but also the church in a location. And he's explaining to us why it's so important that we gather together as the church in big church and little church. People feel differently about the word church, don't they? I, do you know, quite often when I talk about encounter, I just call it encounter. I just call it encounter. I say, yeah, yeah, encounter, it's just it's something we've started. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the building industry. We're building God's house, so, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, because church conjures up so many negative images, and rightly so, really, in a lot of ways. Conjures up negative images for some, and it conjures up wrong images for others. So even if they're positive, that might be just a picture of a building. Right? We call this a church. This is Walkerville Uniting Church that we meet in. But the thing that's kind of special about being a church plant, about being a startup, is that we don't have to sit under that misappropriation. We get to be the church. We get to be the church. This is what church is. It's when two or three people gather together. And we hear two words that kind of describe church in the New Testament, right? These two Greek words, which is how you know I went to Bible college, right? These two Greek words. One is ecclesia. Everyone say ecclesia. ecclesia. And one is koinonia. Everyone say koinonia. koinonia. Yeah, thanks for putting the accent on. I really like that. Ecclesia and koinonia. 
So ecclesia is basically like a public gathering. Right now, this is the ecclesia. It's open to everybody. Come on in. We're gathered here as the church. And usually, when you see the word church in the New Testament, that's what it's saying, ecclesia, this kind of gathering. But then there's this other one, koinonia, which is like an intimate gathering, an intimate gathering. And it used to be called fellowship, but that word's kind of gone out of fashion in a number of ways. Koinonia is an intimate community. Ecclesia is a, is a big, open assembly. It's big church and a small church. And churches have been, spent the better part of 2,000 years having stupid arguments about which one is the right one. And the, the answer is yes. Yes. They are both the right one, big church and small church. Let me explain. When we gather here as, as a wider church, and by the grace of God, we pray to grow more and more, not because we want to necessarily be what's sometimes called a mega church or anything like that, but because we believe people matter to Jesus. And the more people that come in through these doors, the more we can share the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died so that you may live. And so we want this ecclesia to grow. Now, what happens in this group? You end up rubbing shoulders with people that you wouldn't otherwise rub shoulders with. The more it grows, the more weirdos that we have here. And I say have, present tense. We have them. I'm one of them. I see that hand. Self-referential, third person, pointing to my own hand in a sermon. Yeah, I'm pretty weird. It's fine. We have them. And it's a good thing. Because if you're not rubbing shoulders with any weirdo, you're not really fulfilling the full gospel. You're not fulfilling Jesus' mandate to go out and minister to the widow, to the orphan, to the alien, to the people who are broken and homeless and mentally ill and drug addicted and desperately need help. You need to be around those people. Because when you only do small church, and I'll flip this around in a sec, when you only do small church, you can get insular. I think the small church model where you just live in a group of six to eight people can work for about 12 months before you start to become an insular click. After that, you need to think outside yourself. Because when you do small church, it's really easy just to go, I'm going to hang out with my six best mates. Great. We're doing church here. Sort of. Are we? It looks like you're just hanging out with your mates. You might open a Bible from time to time. Great. Jesus is very impressed with you. There's a, this photo from, um, sorry, gig economy. Sorry, I haven't gone anywhere near photos, have I? Sorry. Can you check the Ignite photo up? This photo up here is, uh, is what big worship can look like. A thousand people packed into Woodville Town Hall. It was unbelievable. Now, what I loved about this is when I walked in right at the start, um, I, I was standing next to like a bunch of 15-year-olds. I'm like, okay, that's pretty weird. You know, they're all definitely turning around like, why is my dad here? You know, it was, it was, I felt very out of place. Like I was about to be carded and kicked out. Um, and then... The crowd sort of shifts a bit, and suddenly I'm, I'm talking to somebody, and I look around, and everyone's in like their 50s and older. I'm like, wow, that's cool. And then most of them went up to take a seat up there because <laughs> they're smarter than we are. <laughs> and then the crowd shifts a bit more, and I look around, and suddenly I'm surrounded by just a bunch of Asian students. I'm far out. How cool is this? This is why the ecclesia matters, because you rub shoulders with different groups of people. You can't be inside your own bubble you're forced out into the reality of God's kingdom, which is you're going to want to do. Because if you're somebody who's a Bible-believing Christian and you think at some stage there's going to be an end game that you're in eternity with Jesus Christ and suddenly you look around and there's old people and black people and you feel awkward, that's going to be awkward for you, not for them. They're going to be thrilled. 
you're going to go, oh, I didn't hang out with any of you people during my time on earth. This is why the ecclesia matters. We must be diverse. We must be thinking about people that aren't like us. Paul says it about this. You need to be praying and reaching out to them because even the pagans are nice to people who look like them. Another thing I noticed at Ignite, that twice, I won't say what was happening, but twice I saw people doing things that I would classify as like not my flavor. Right? They were responding to God in a way that I was like, not my thing. I'm so glad they did. I'm so glad they did. I want to be part of a, a wider kingdom where people respond to God in a way that is so natural and beautiful and helpful and comes out of an overflow of the Spirit moving in their lives. And if we don't have the ecclesia, we don't have that. When we have the ecclesia, when we have big church, we get to gather together. We get to use our gifts together. We get speakers and musicians and kidsmen and hospitality and people that care and welcome for people pastorally. We get that together. You can't do that properly with five people. You're forcing yourself into roles because you're not opening up your home. Jesus ministered to thousands and he had at least dozens of disciples. And he regularly went up to the synagogue to pray. So don't tell me it's not biblical to have big church. Finally, I will just say this. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. So if you're a Christian here and you felt upset or frustrated with the church in the past, I truly understand. We all have those moments. Just don't walk away from the church. You can't tell Jesus you love him and then say his wife is hideous, okay? The bride of Christ is another term for the church. Don't tell Jesus his wife is ugly, okay? Now let's flip it, flip it though. Let's flip the script a bit and go to small church because small church matters too. And the way we do small church here at Encounter is in our life groups. Life groups are the lifeblood of, of our church. And this is why. Because the temptation can be, particularly when you've got a value like we're going to talk about next week, which is to be real, is to say, oh, the problem with big church is you can't be real. You can't be honest. You can't be authentic, right? Everyone's judging you. Like, nobody's judging you until you look around with that conspicuous look like, why is everyone judging me? And then they wonder why you're looking around like that. Until that point, you were fine. But people, the tendency can be to go, you can't be real in big church, no, what you can't do is use a microphone as an excuse for a public therapy session that no one signed up for. That's unfair and terrifying and awkward as people squirm in their seats as you tell them you're in the most secrets. That is not helpful. Where is that helpful? In the home, in a life group. We call them life groups because we want people to be doing life with each other. We actually want a holistic sense of life together. Yes, we want you to open the scriptures. Yes, we want you to pray for each other. We also want you to eat food. We want you to have a good time. We want you to do community and, and play board games and maybe start sports groups. Do what you need to do to build community because we're so isolated. And when you have that life group, part of it is accountability, is holding each other up and going, hey, you did this the other day. Last week at Life Group, you were asking for prayer not to do it. Oh, you did it. Like, oh, maybe you weren't praying hard enough? No, 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 don't give me that. Don't give me that. Don't do it. I'm calling you out on it because you asked me to call you out on it. Not because I'm a jerk, but because you came into this intimate group of people and said, hey, this is who I am now, and it's, it's good, right? But I know through Christ he wants me to be better. He wants me to be growing more Christ-like in every day. So I want you to help me grow to be more like Jesus. And when we say yes to that, 
that's our open slather to go, all right, let's talk this out. If you stuff up, I'm not going to be judging you, but I am going to be in it with you to go, why are you doing it, man? Why are you doing it? Let's work through this together. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it again. There's no judgment. There's no anger. I'm going to help you back up on your horse and you're going to get riding again. But I'm here to not let you just get away with it because we do believe for the best for you. We do believe God wants more for you. That's why big church doesn't cut it by itself. Because what you can have is an intimacy in your life group. And those of you who are in life groups now know what it's like, that deep friendship and intimacy, that brotherhood, that sisterhood that you get in Christ when you share your burdens and pains and struggles with one another. That's what we're meant to be doing. You can't fully get that in big church and you can't fully get that necessary diversity and welcoming and inclusion in small church. You need to have both. Is that good? Is that, is that good? Uh, the thing is, we all have our own preconceptions. We all lean, like we have a preference one way or the other. Our job is to try and hold some of these things even handily and go, like, you know, like the old El Paso kid. Why can't we have both? Why can't we have both? God bless the old El Paso kid. I want to really quickly go through a few scriptures and then we're going to finish up. And I want to start by touching on the Garden of Eden because in Genesis 2, we, we hear God saying this. He's creating all the world and he creates creatures and then he creates a man and he says, humanity. This is the pinnacle of all creation. And then he goes, no, nah, I can do better. <laughs> and he creates a woman. But what he actually says is this. What he actually says is this. It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for us to be alone. I'll create a helper, a partner, somebody to join with them in their struggles. It is not good for you to be alone. So he does that. And then when man and, and woman are together, they go, this is pretty good. Maybe we don't need God anymore. And so they try and do their own thing. And then they stuff up. They sin. And their first response is to go, let's push for isolation. Let's hide from God. Spoilers, it doesn't work with someone who's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. You can't hide well. So loneliness becomes this reflection of our fallen condition as sinners as broken people. Then you go a bit further and you get to Jesus. Jesus, who, there's this great messages where you can talk about how Jesus is the true Adam. He fulfilled everything Adam was really meant to fulfill. And Jesus comes and he is so present with people. One of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry, one of the things that makes him so attractive to people is the way he is with people. But Jesus was wise. He had these groups. He had these three close friends. He had these 12 disciples who were like his, you know, just his party, party mates. 70 people, good mates, just general good friends. And then 300 people, acquaintances. And then the thousands who he ministered to, but he wouldn't have known their names. Jesus had these circles like we do. He also did this other interesting thing, which is a whole sermon in itself, where he would go by himself to pray. He knew when he needed time to recharge. And then he came back to be with others. But this is what happened to Jesus. He goes and he lives the life we lead, but fulfilled completely. He, he goes toward the death we are meant to die, to die for us. But before he gets there, he stops. He, he has this feast called Passover where he fully appreciates, and he's in this moment right here, where he appreciates the betrayal that is about to come from one of his dearest friends, one of his 12 closest friends, a man called Judas Iscariot. 
He sends Judas out. He says, I know what's happening. Just go and do it. And then he takes his friends with him and he says, will you pray with me? Let's, let's go into the garden to pray. And so the disciples go in. And then he takes his three, his brothers, his homies. And he comes in and he says, look, would you just, would you pray for me? Would you keep watch over me? And they're like, yeah, yeah, totally will. Within 30 seconds, they're asleep. And Jesus goes and he drops to his knees in the garden. And he starts to weep and he says, God, God, if it is possible to take this away from me, would you? And it's not possible. But Jesus says, but, 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 but. Not my will, but yours. Which is why it's the life we were meant to lead. Jesus is constantly adding that to the end of every sentence. Doesn't matter. Not my will, but yours. But in this moment, we see the sense of the loneliness Jesus has. Even with his three closest friends, he wanders back to talk to them and see how they're praying for him and they're fast asleep. In his moment of need. And then he gets arrested and they scatter. They run away. And Peter, who's meant to be his best mate, follows from a distance and then gets questioned on it. And, and this little girl challenges him and says, aren't you friends with, with Jesus? And this grown man starts swearing and, and carrying on because he's terrified that this little girl has found him out as being Jesus' friend. Jesus is more isolated than ever in his moment of need. He comes to the cross. And in Matthew 27, verses 45 to 46, there is this horrific moment where he's on the cross and he's just dying. And in this moment, he quotes one of the Psalms and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one person who came to bring the presence of God to us is absent from God in his moment of need. God had to be absent as he died, as he took that punishment upon himself in that moment. Jesus takes on all our loneliness and separation from God. He took upon himself the fullness of that so we would never be lonely in that relationship again. It was all about our our loneliness from God the Father. Our loneliness, this reflection of our fallen condition, this way we are isolated, this way we work in ways in which we don't have to have deep friendships, uh, this ways in we, the ways in which we live in homes where we can put up fences and walls around ourselves, this way we date in a way where we can have a minimum of investment. All of this is a reflection of our brokenness in the relationship with God the Father. I'm just overwhelmed by the love of God. God is longing to welcome you home into his arms. There's nothing lonelier than the cry of Jesus on the cross. God become flesh, separated from God taking the sin of the world on his shoulders for our sake. Here at Encounter, we value people. We are all about people. Because when you encounter people, you encounter Jesus. You do. You encounter the face of Jesus. I see the face of Jesus in each and every one of you. Because one of the great theologies of the church is that on each of us is the image of God. Each one of you bear God's image. You are made and crafted with purpose. 
made in the image of God. We value people because not every person is the image of God. We value people because Jesus commanded us to value people. We value people because somewhere in us, somewhere in that image is an inherent dignity and humanity, an inherent value. It's not there because we live and breathe. Because if you say two, a person saving and a mouse is, you know, this, there's a mouse and a person in the ocean, go save something. I'm saving the person 100 times out of 100. Doesn't matter how cute the Pomeranian is, I'm still saving the person. People have an inherent dignity. They're the crowning glory of creation. They are God's image bearers. That's what you are. That's why we value you. That's why relationships matter. And if everyone else is God's image bearer, that means you are too. You have inherent value. You have inherent dignity. It doesn't matter what has happened in your circumstances. God is here to say that your image, his, his image is on you, which means you have value. It's his way of stamping you. Your very DNA is a reflection of God's own image. He says, you're my daughter, you're my son. I'm not letting you get out of it this easily. You matter. You have a part to play. We need you. The church is better when you are here and we are less when you're not. My challenge to you is the one I sense God asking right at the start, and that is this. Are you ready to just jump in? Are you ready to jump in tonight? Dan, why don't you guys get up and um, I'm just going to pray. really quickly say one thing before we, before we pray. I, I had this whole spiel about the stuff we do as a church. I, I just want to say one thing. Um, we, we push an idea called plus one. It's one of my many cliches, like I said. Uh, catchphrases, whatever. Plus ones. The, the plus one idea is basically that all of us have the time and the faith and the, and the investment energy to invest in one person. Just invest in one person. Sometimes over the years, there's been, we, we talk about the Great Commission. It's like, go out and make disciples. And you're like, all of them? Me? That's a lot of people. I can't get to Cambodia this week. <laughs> but I, I think when we recognize that God has actually put us into relationship with people, and we look at the way Jesus had three people close to him, it becomes a lot easier to go, well, what if I just choose one? What if I just choose one? And I invest, and I invest, and I invest, and I don't put an end date on it. I do not put an end date on it. I just sow into them as a person, even maybe especially if I get nothing out of it. That's what it means to have a plus one mindset. It's to be an invitational church where you constantly reach out and say, I recognize there's someone else in my life that needs the life-saving, life-fulfilling message of Jesus. Let me pray, and uh, then we're going to have a time of worship and response. God, I just sense that you're moving in this place in a, in a way that is moving in people's hearts. That will happen when we're, when we're reminded how valuable we are. That, God, you saw such value on us. You saw such inherent dignity in us 
that you gave up your own dignity. Coming to earth as Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you lived the life we were meant to live and took upon yourself the penalty we were meant to pay, the death we were meant to have, so that we could have eternal life, that we could have a healed relationship with God the Father and healed relationships with those around us, which is why when you ask what the greatest commandment is, Lord, you told us it's to love God and to love others. Those are the relationships you came to repair, our our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. God, right now, would you do a work in everyone's hearts as they sit in this moment of prayer? Lord, I sense for some people, it's very simple. You're, You're just putting some body on their heart that they need to invest in. You're bringing a name to their mind. You're bringing a a picture into their mind, someone they need to invest in. For some people, it's blindingly obvious. For others, it's someone way out of left field. I just want to encourage you, trust whatever God is speaking to you in this moment. Just jump. Just go. It's okay. But for others, I, I sense, Lord, that there's a real wrestle with that theology, not because of the theology, but because they look in the mirror and don't like what they see, or they, or we struggle to see our own value and our own worth, that we are loved by God. And God, I want to lift up all of those people now. This is not going to be a hands-up moment. But if in your heart you know that that's you, that, that you've been telling yourself you don't have value, that you've been telling yourself that you're not good enough, that you're not getting it done, that you're not lovable, likable, dependable, whatever. I just want you to see the image of Christ right now. That you would see the image of God on you. Because God takes those lies. He sang it in reckless love. There's no lie he won't tear down. God is coming against that lie in some people's lives right now. It's going to be a chain that is broken in you that will change you spiritually, psychologically, mentally. You will never be the same again because God is breaking the chain that says, I'm not enough. You are enough because Jesus was enough on your behalf. Jesus is standing between you and certain death saying, don't worry, I've got it and I love you. I'm not tolerating you. I am loving you. God, would you pour out your grace? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on people right now? That they would know your love. I'm praying for a sense of the presence of God in people's hearts right now. A sense of your love, a sense of your passion, a sense of your devotion for them. A sense of of that you are calling them to know their own worth. Depression be gone in Jesus' name. Be broken. Anxiety be broken in Jesus' name. There's no place for you in these lives of these amazing women and men who bear the image of God. There is no room for these things. And pour out your spirit, Lord, into our brokenness. And for those of us who are here, if we've never heard that message of Jesus, that life-saving message that he lived the life we were meant to live, died the death we were meant to die, paid the price we were meant to pay so that we would forever know our worth and our love by looking at the worth of our God.
and the love of our God. For anyone who's never heard that message, the message of true life, tonight is your night. Jesus, I want to pray for them too. That if in their hearts you know that they need to accept you as Lord, maybe they've been wandering near that and uh, have been dipping their toes in the water and been moving away. Maybe they're nowhere near it and they're just jumping in. Or maybe they've been in church for ages and they said, you know what, I'm not, I've never really trusted you, Jesus. Well, today is your day. I'm just going to pray something out loud. And if that's you, I want you to pray it in your heart. Okay, just pray it inside your head. Lord Jesus, just pray it after me in your head. Lord Jesus, today I give my life to you. I believe that you are king over heaven and earth. That you are God. That you came down to earth, born as a baby, to do ministry and live the life I was meant to live so close to God. That you died on the cross, paying the price I was meant to pay so far from God. But that you overcome the pain in the grave. And that in that, you made the way for me to have eternal life so that the grave and death would have no more power over me. Death will not conquer me. I give my life to you. I give my life to serve that God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to play one song as we finish up. And um, again, I just want to encourage you, just jump in. Just jump in. Whatever God is stirring up in your heart, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be concerned. Don't be worried. Don't, don't look around at the people around you. Just, just be with God in this moment. Take a moment between you and God. You can stand. You can sit however you'd like to respond. That's all right. But don't miss the moment. Don't miss this chance to have a moment with you and God.